0: Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly.
1: This week, as many kids head back to school, we look at what really works to help stop COVID transmission in the classroom. The simple truth is
2: that masks work.
0: And we hear about new research into what's happening in our brains when we daydream.
2: We uh, detected this very specific pattern of activity that has been characterized in sleep. I'm Dan Marino in San
0: Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts.
1: Across the Northern Hemisphere, long summer vacations are coming to an end and the kids are heading back to school.
0: Finally, I hear parents sighing.
1: For many kids, this will mean a return to in-person teaching for the first time in months, if
0: not more than a year. And yet the Delta variant of COVID-19 is continuing to cause an uptick in cases around the world.
3: The Delta variant has been driving a surge in cases. Countries are grappling with new infections and growing hospitalizations.
1: Countries are vaccinating children at very different rates. In the U.S., kids over 12 can get the vaccination. The first shots were administered after the FDA expanded Pfizer's emergency use authorization.
0: Yeah, it's the same in France, Germany, Canada, Israel too. But in other countries such as the U.K., vaccines are mainly only available to 16 and 17-year-olds. But
1: we've also got to remember that, at least for the majority of countries around the world, children aren't being offered vaccines at all yet. Here in the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, is the go-to place for COVID-19 information. But we wanted to know more about the evidence specifically in schools. What can be done to stop the transmission of the virus in classrooms and during lunch? So to find out, I called up an epidemiologist. My name is
4: Brandon Guthrie. I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington in the Departments of Global Health and Epidemiology.
1: So are you guys going back to school soon?
4: We are on track to go back to school, both at the university and in the public school system here. I uh, am a a university instructor. Um, I also uh, have two kids in elementary school. So this is a topic that is very close to my heart and something that I've been spending a lot of time both professionally and personally thinking about assessing levels of evidence, um, thinking about what would work, what
1: doesn't work. So have there been outbreaks in schools? We have seen outbreaks
4: in schools. Um, These have been, for the vast majority of these, very small outbreaks. So the best data for this comes from last spring. Uh, We had pretty good information coming out of states like Florida, where most schools were open um, where students some were wearing masks, some were not. there was a lot of variability, and so most of the data actually comes from periods when when we didn 't yet have the vaccines but the the median size of secondary cases in those outbreaks were one or two people, which mm-hmm. means that the you know the overwhelming majority of these outbreaks consisted of one or two additional transmissions. Hmm. What you do see is that the drivers of transmission that are affecting schools really are happening outside of the school itself. And one of the things that we did see is that actually kids are very good at, at following rules. Uh, in a lot of ways, they do it a lot better than adults do. And so we saw in a lot of places that actually because kids in schools were... Generally speaking, following the rules and sitting at their desk and and not you know close to to their friends and other classmates and were wearing their masks in many places, they you know behaviorally were at less risk of both acquiring and transmitting.
1: That's interesting. So the outbreaks in schools were small and different because they were following the rules. <laughs> I,
4: that you know, I, I think that that's that's a pretty safe conclusion. You know, there are special settings that are linked to schools that are probably particularly higher risk. So indoor sports, we have a lot of evidence of some fairly large outbreaks uh, linked to large indoor sporting events where athletes were not wearing masks. And that's something I think for this upcoming school year, we need to think about really carefully. Things like music and choir and orchestra and those, those kind of things Those are challenging settings because those are settings where wearing masks is not something that um, is really practical in most of those settings. And we have some really clear evidence that choir concerts and and singing really are linked to higher risk of transmission.
1: Hmm. All right. So given all this, uh, we've got schools coming back, we've got the Delta variants, and we've got a fair bit of evidence that you've been looking at over the last six months to a year How do we do this safely? How do we prevent spread at schools?
4: You know, the CDC has put out great guidance. Um, They really focus on on layered protection measures. And the idea here is that if you get a failure in, in one place, you have an added level of protection. At the top of the list is vaccination. You know, the number one thing that we can do in schools to keep schools safe, uh, as well as basically everywhere else, is get as many people vaccinated as possible. We are getting evidence out about how the currently authorized vaccines are working in the context of the Delta variant. You know, there are some things that are, are a little bit disappointing. Um, the vaccines are a bit less effective at preventing infections. Um... But they have almost the same level of protection against symptomatic disease. And so the risk of becoming symptomatic if you are infected with the virus and you're vaccinated is in the range of 75 to 80 percent protection and even stronger protection against the more severe forms of disease. And so what that means is that vaccines alone are not going to be the solution to stop transmission. That's where the layered piece comes in. So top of the list, get people vaccinated. Vaccines are great. They're safe. They work.
1: Okay. So what's tier two then? Tier two is masks.
0: Mask or no mask? It's an ongoing debate, but not if you're in school, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics.
4: The simple truth is that masks work. And so if we're wearing masks, we can do almost everything else that we would do in normal life, including in the classroom. And, you know, there are special situations in the school setting. I think one of them, and and this is something that, that I myself am in a situation of thinking about, is when you're the teacher or the instructor and you're up in front of a classroom and you're vaccinated... Is it okay for you to take your mask off when you're talking? You know, we don't have perfect recommendations for that. I think that that is something that there's going to be some evolution around. I think in classrooms where you've got kids who can't yet be vaccinated or you have a high level of of kids who aren't vaccinated in the classroom, common sense would say teachers keep the mask on
1: whenever possible. So we've got vaccination, we've got masks, and the thing that's gone along with masks this whole pandemic has been social distancing. So what about social distancing?
4: Yeah, and I, I like to use the term physical distancing because uh, we can be physically distanced without being socially distanced. I like that. And I think, you know, here it does get down to a little bit of it depends. Um, the The distancing recommendations were initially really based on a belief that transmission was through these small droplets, and that if you were out of the range where those small droplets could be projected, then you were safe. And that's where that that six-foot recommendation came from. Um, You know, as we've learned more about how the virus is actually transmitted, it's really clear that airborne transmission at least over relatively modest distances is really probably the dominant route particularly in indoor spaces. So so there's nothing magical about that 6 foot marker. One of the things that that does is it can result in reductions in room capacity. And from an airborne transmission standpoint, that's actually probably the more relevant measure is how many people are in a space you know, potentially expelling virus and breathing it in. Now, things change a little bit once we start talking about people being vaccinated and masked. And so with a mask on, the amount of space that you need is not as clear cut, you know, and that's that's what has led to kind of shrinking that down to three foot spacing uh, when you have people who are unvaccinated and, and wearing masks and no clear spacing recommendations for people who are vaccinated and mask wearing. And that's what's led especially many college campuses to go back to a sort of a full capacity model. And so I think, especially when we're talking about um, schools that that serve kids that are not yet eligible for vaccines, then I think that thinking through capacity is still going to be an important thing. Um, the places where it gets trickier around spacing is is around lunch, particularly when we're talking about kids who are not vaccinated, and that's where you know some creativity and finding ways to cut down the the density of kids to try to put as much space between them as possible. You know whether it's eating in the classroom or maybe in the gym, having more uh, lunch sessions. That's where I think every school is going to be a little bit different because every school has different constraints that they're working with. But, you know, I'm confident that this is something that we can solve. And that does bring us, you know, maybe to the next point of, of ventilation.
2: Singapore General Hospital has installed air extractors to improve ventilation in non-air-conditioned wards.
4: We don't have perfect recommendations that are based on hard evidence with transmission as as an outcome. But it. I think we need to think carefully in terms of when we're talking about really expensive renovations, that those may not pay off at least from the COVID-19 virus transmission standpoint there are there are probably much lower tech things that can be done that will be a lot less expensive and and may give nearly the same results as big renovations of of ventilation plants.
0: HEPA filters in most residential air purifiers are certified to capture 99.97% of particles, including the coronavirus.
4: You know, thinking carefully, how does air move in the room? Um, Can we get away with in-room HEPA filters or opening windows, things like that. In New York City schools, they, they showed actually you get a lot of benefit from just opening windows and taking advantage of the way that air naturally moves in in some of these settings uh, rather than putting in place really expensive renovations.
1: So uh, any other things that we know do work?
4: I mean, there are other things that do work uh, to some degree. And the problem is, is that oftentimes we don't have evidence for what additional benefit do you get when these measures are combined together? And so, you know, a lot of these things, the evidence that we do have comes either from modeling or from sort of a single intervention uh, scenario. So things like cohorting, uh, where you limit the, the mixing between different groups of kids, it does work. You know, it certainly works from a modeling perspective. There's, there is indication, you know, in the school setting that when classes don't mix together or grades don't mix together, it does limit the potential for an epidemic to grow larger. And, you know, in the context of of the Delta variant where you have more virus present, um, people seem to be uh, infectious earlier after exposure, there is some practical reasons to think that when it's practical to implement without major disruptions, you know, the more that you can keep groups of kids or teachers or people in the workplace from mixing broadly, the more chance you have to limit the size of an outbreak. But I think where things get a little complicated is if we're talking about really disruptive approaches to cohorting, does that add much to vaccination, to wearing masks, to good ventilation? Probably not enough to offset the, the level of disruption. And then one of the other things that that comes up a lot, it is part of the CDC recommendations to do some version of screening. Some school districts are focusing on COVID-19 testing weekly to help ensure a safe learning environment for students. And when we talk about screening, we're talking about testing for infection among people who are not exhibiting symptoms. There is good modeling evidence that it works. And again, this is pre-Delta, but the positivity rates are incredibly low. So you do a tremendous amount of screening that results in very few positive cases. And so I think Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. as schools think about how to implement screening programs in the context of educational settings, I think they really do need to model these scenarios out to look at How much is it going to cost? How many cases do you think that you could prevent? And how much of that prevention would be in addition to what you would see from these other much less expensive, much less disruptive interventions?
1: So uh, speaking of screening, uh, temperature checks. This is a quasi test here. Uh, Thoughts on that?
4: Temperature checks and symptom screening it's probably not very harmful, but it doesn't detect very many cases. Um, there's lots of settings where this has been uh, evaluated. It detects very few cases uh, and it misses a lot of cases, especially in settings like schools where you have a lot of young people. Um, young people tend to not show symptoms or uh, to show symptoms in a, in a more delayed manner. So you can have, um, you know, cases that are are present, are shedding virus, but have no fever, don't exhibit any other symptoms. And so thinking about temperature checks or uh, symptom screening as a key level of protection and relying on it, especially if you're not applying the other
1: measures is, is not a great option. Sure. What about something like plexiglass barriers? They're up at restaurants all the time. You see them in front of cashiers. Do those really work? Worth it in the classroom?
4: I would say in the school setting and especially in the classroom setting, I think we have pretty clear indication at this point that they don't work and in fact may actually be harmful. There's there's an increasing number of um, reports out there that show that desk shields actually impede the flow of air in the classroom and can actually lead to sort of building up of virus in in sort of areas in the classroom and could have the the perverse effect of actually increasing the risk of transmission.
1: So final question here for you. It seems like this is a lot about trade-offs. You have to balance things, cost, effort, decrease in quality of education. So Any advice to people both in the school system or families like yourself with children? What should they be thinking about those risks, those benefits here?
4: We implicitly make trade-offs every day um, when we go outside. I think that, you know, figuring out ways to get a grasp of what is that actual absolute level of risk rather than the level of fear that you have surrounding it. Um, And then, What are the benefits for the activities that you are potentially not doing um, or doing in a way that is is not ideal? You know, in my opinion, this in-person school environment has such important benefits to students. Um, You know, there are obvious direct benefits like um, better learning outcomes. There are are less obvious uh, benefits around socialization and mental health and you know access to food services and, and all kinds of other things that happen when students are in person that don't happen when they're learning remotely. And I would say that it is really clear that the risk to young people from the infections with COVID-19 virus, while they are real, they are very rare. The harms of not being in school are very real and are experienced by many, many, many more students than are, than are at risk of the bad effects of, of COVID-19.
1: Wonderful, Brandon. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing your thoughts and knowledge with us. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so Brandon was pretty clear there that it's vaccines and masks. Those are the two things that are going to cut transmission in schools, right?
1: That's what it sounds like, and it's pretty easy stuff for the most part. But it was interesting to hear him talk about and consider the risk versus reward. There's a lot of things to consider. School is super important, especially for young children. And it seems that those two interventions, vaccines and masks, can lower the risk while really allowing students to get the reward from schools.
0: Masks are annoying though, aren't they? And I know they're important, but it must be really difficult in a classroom situation for the teachers and and the kids.
1: You're totally right, Gemma. So to figure out what actually those challenges are and ways to get around them, I called up an education expert who's been specifically looking at masks in the classroom.
5: My name is Laura Abu Haider. I am a full professor in France in linguistics and applied linguistics at the University of Grenoble Alpes. And I live in Cairo, Egypt.
1: Laura has been living in Egypt for the past few years, where she's also been working for the French embassy. Part of her research is on phonetics that's the study of how people talk and pronounce sounds and words. She was the perfect person to ask a question I think we've all been wondering for the last year and a half. How does wearing a mask actually change the sounds we make when we speak? And how does that affect another person's ability to actually understand what we're saying?
5: First of all, when you talk, you breathe. And when we talk without a mask, we are not conscious at all about all this process. But when we wear a mask, especially when we wear a thick one, you know, with tissue. We can have some difficulties dealing with breathing process uh, because, for example, you may have difficulties with controlling the flow of air when we talk uh, without a mask. We know that there are a lot of information, linguistic informations, as well as emotional ones that uh, we transmit with facial expressions. And it's really very important to be aware about that, especially when we are teachers wearing masks uh, and especially when students wear masks too.
1: When masks began making their way into classrooms last year, Laura was immediately concerned about how they would affect both teachers and their students.
5: As a phonetician, I felt very concerned on a scientific level about the mask in the classroom on both sides, children and teachers. A lot of colleagues of mine were telling me how bad they felt about that. And then I made a survey for teachers, French and Egyptian and Algerian and some Asian teachers answered and contributed with very relevant informations.
1: How many people responded to your survey?
5: A a, a little bit less than 100 people. And people were very uh, thankful because uh, somebody wanted to listen to them and gave them the opportunity of talking about their fears.
1: And what were people worried
5: about? A lot of them were upset about physiological problems, breathe difficulties, less oxygen, suffocating, etc. A lot of them were uh, afraid about being tired, about having to speak louder, to shout. Some of them said that they were afraid to hate teaching, the thing that they loved most.
1: Did you survey them after they started teaching? And how did that experience compare to their worries?
5: Yeah. So the new things that came out uh, were about repeating instructions. Some teachers said too that when they began talking with a mask, some children did not really realize that the teacher began to talk. And this was very surprising. Some teachers are convinced that uh, wearing a mask prevents efficiency in learning with uh, students.
1: So uh, any other big uh, surprises that you got from the survey?
5: Some teachers said that they discovered that there was a weird silence into the classroom because children didn't whisper anymore, didn't laugh anymore. <laughs> and they said, well, I think that there is less pleasure being in the classroom. I would so much like to hear my student whispering
1: <laughs> Are there things that students and teachers uh, either did or learned or could do and could learn to improve this?
5: Yes, of course. Some teachers used uh, differently their voice and tonation. Some of them said they spoke louder and slower and used their intonation in a different way so that the hidden face is compensated by intonation. Some of them said that they used their eyes in a different way because students didn't have all uh, the face as a whole anymore. Uh, They didn't have the mouth and cheeks and things like that. And this is something teachers talked about. The learning support cues, that means all the facial mimics and attitudes d- disappeared. So they tried to d- discover new ways of being in the classroom in order to compensate these facial attitudes who were not there anymore.
1: Um, for someone, a student in, a say, a college classroom who, you know, the teacher's up there lecturing, Should students pay more attention to the eyes, for example, than they would have otherwise, or pay attention to hand gestures more? Like what can a listener do to try and improve their comprehension?
5: Of course, they have to pay attention much more to the eye, to intonation. Intonation is really very, very important because it gives informations and cues that can help understanding and help learning. Uh, And usually teachers should be aware about the cues they can give with their gestures, with their eyes, but not only the cues. Teachers should use some some resources or some activities in order to be sure that students follow and understand. For example, teachers are used to encourage with their face. With a masked face, the student doesn't uh, really see uh, the cues. That means I, as a teacher, am encouraging you. So teachers have to be aware. They have to translate into words the things that were implicit into facial attitudes.
1: Yeah, that, that, you know, that look of encouragement that a teacher gives you when you're doing a presentation or something. That's really important to a student, especially young students. So Laura, if you had you know, one piece of advice to give to teachers... Uh, what would it be?
5: Well, try to be as much comfortable as possible with the mask. Masks shouldn't become an obstacle and be aware that what masks hide should be uh, converted in something else.
1: And uh, Laura, for students?
5: I I know that it's really very difficult for a lot of children to go to school with a mask, but uh, maybe try to find something that could be fun. One advice uh, could be to try to take it as a play. Imagine, I don't know, you're in Star Wars, you're in Superman, Superwoman. Think, try to be a hero with your mask, and that's it. (laughs)
1: Awesome. Laura, um, thank you so much for uh, giving us the time today. Much appreciated.
5: Okay, thank you. Uh, take care in San Francisco.
0: <laughs> Sounds like Laura's saying, masks are here to stay, and we've just got to figure out ways to make them fun.
1: Both Brandon and Laura have written pieces for the conversation. You can find links to those in our show notes, plus more analysis from experts as young people head back to schools, colleges, and universities.
0: Dan, for our next story, we're digging into the science behind something that may happen to a lot of kids when they go back to school this month, daydreaming. Daydreaming. Oh, I can especially imagine, you know, you can't really hear
1: the teacher, you're bored, you stare off into space. Daydreaming, a, a classic pastime.
0: The reasons why we daydream are actually a bit of a mystery to scientists. But new research is uncovering what happens in our brains when our mind wanders. And it's confirming just how fine a line there is between being asleep and being awake.
2: I'm uh, Dr. Thomas Andrillon, I'm a neuroscientist at the Paris Brain Institute. And I'm also an uh, adjunct research fellow at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. So in in the first part of my career, I studied sleep and how sleepers can be disconnected from their environments, how sometimes they can pay attention to their environment, and ravelling the fact that the sleeping brain can do many, many things. So for my postdoctoral research, when I moved to Australia, I decided uh, I wanted to flip that coin and look at the reverse phenomenon. So when you are supposed to be awake, uh, sometimes you can miss information on your environment or or you can... Um, zap and zone out completely. And I'm wondering to understand what are the neurophysiological basis of these uh, lapses of attention.
0: Okay, so how much of a mystery has it been about what happens in those moments when your your mind zones out, when your mind wanders? What don't we know? What do we know?
2: So there are several layers of, of mystery. One is assessing the amount of time we spend in these states with uh, this oft-quoted figure of uh, we spend 50% of our our waking time mind-wandering. And another mystery is is the function. I mean, if we spend so much time thinking about something else, does it serve a a purpose? Uh, Has it a biological function?
0: Okay, let's dig down now into this new research. So this is a new paper that you've recently published and you've written about for the conversation with some of your colleagues. So tell me what what you did.
2: We had run a couple of pilot experiments where we had people doing very boring tasks. This is what allows participants to think about all the things. And we noted in this pilot experiment that a lot of our participants were uh, struggling a bit uh, with uh, sleepiness. So we thought maybe there is something interesting here. Uh, And we wanted especially to distinguish a situation where you don't pay attention to the task because you are starting to think about something else which we referred as mind wandering. So your mind is wandering elsewhere to a situation where the mind will be wandering nowhere. So you have a sudden blank and you can't really tell what you hand in mind if you are interrupted. There is uh, a a moment of of lapse in your your stream of thoughts. And initially, our hypothesis will be that uh, sleepiness will be mostly associated with uh, the latter. So when you have a blank, there is a moment where you can't report uh, any conscious thoughts. Yeah, so we designed an experiment that's fairly simple from the subject perspective. So they come uh, in the lab, we equip them with an EEG system. Uh, so with sensors on the head are recording the activity of their brain. And they are placed in front of a screen with a keyboard and we display uh, visual stimuli to them. So there are two variants of the task. One where the uh, visual stimuli are digits, uh, so from one to nine, and another where uh, they are looking at faces. So in the digit version, for example, you have these digits being presented for uh, one second in random order. So you don't know what's going to appear next. The only instruction you have is to press a button each time you see a new digit, except if the digit is a, is a digit number three. So most of the time, you have to press a button. From time to time, a three will appear and you will have to hold your response. Mm-hmm. So It's this pretty is,
0: boring, basically.
2: It is pretty boring. Um, it is very easy to get carried away because it doesn't require a lot of computation to do the task. But it does require you to pay continuous attention to what's in front of you. On top of that, what we added uh, is that every minute or so, we interrupted parts in the middle of the task to ask them what they had in mind just before the interruption. And especially we wanted to know what kind of mental state they were in. So whether they were paying attention to the task, whether they were wandering off, uh, so thinking about something else, or whether they were blanking, so thinking about nothing. And they also had to indicate how tired they are. And that's with these tasks that we can link the three information we're interested in. The first one is the information about their brain activity that we record with the electroencephalogram. Second information is uh, about their uh, behavior, their performance in the task. And the last bit of information we want to have is their subjective experience. So which kind of mental states they were in. And we analyze these three uh, together to make a link between the physiology, the behavior, and the phenomenology.
0: Okay, so what did you actually find?
2: Uh, What we found is that both the mind blanking and mind wandering was associated with a state of sleepiness. Uh, So usually people uh, think that when they're sleepy, they're slower. That is only part, uh, part of the story. When you're sleepy, you're actually both slower and impulsive. Sometimes you will be too slow, sometimes you will be too fast. And that's why being sleepy and, for example, driving sleepy is so dangerous. What we found as well is that these states of being in a blank or being mind-wandering were also associated with similar patterns of sluggishness and impulsivity from the behavior. Uh, So when people were blanking, they tended to miss more uh, stimuli, so to fail to respond when they should. When they were mind-wandering, we had a bit of the opposite, more impulsivity. So they tended to respond to the digit threes. So when they were not supposed to respond, then they tended to be also a bit faster. Now we wanted to complement that view and whether we could explain why at some point someone will be uh, impulsive or will be sluggish uh, while in both cases being sleepy. Uh, because if sleepiness is the cause of this attentional lapses, you still have to explain why the same cause can have uh, opposite consequences. And that's why we were interested in this concept of, of local sleep.
0: So we were able to see which bits of the brain were more locally asleep in your experiment when people said their mind was wandering?
2: Yeah, exactly. So what we did was to detect sleepiness in the brain. And to detect sleepiness, we uh, detected this very specific pattern of activity that has been characterised in sleep, that is called the sleep slow wave. So we looked at this, but smaller version of this, in the waking brain. And what we could find is that in the waking brain, you can find smaller version of this big uh, global slow wave. So they are more local, they are smaller in amplitudes, but they still look like what you will record uh, during sleep. And they have the same properties. They increase the more you stay awake. They are associated with um, subjective signs of sleepiness. So. Uh, The more you feel sleepy, the more you will find them. Um, They also correlate with the pupil size, which is also a good marker of sleepiness. So it's not like they just look like sleep slow. They also share a lot of of properties that you would expect from a marker of sleep. Uh, It doesn't mean that any form of attentional lapses will always be associated uh, with signs of, of sleep. Because we know that sometimes when we are really excited, really engaged, sometimes we can be too aroused and that can also lead to attentional lapses. And it's very likely that they will have nothing to do with sleep because people are just uh, too excited to arouse. But that is where mind-wandering occurs the most.
0: Do we know why this mind-wandering is happening, though?
2: We hope here to maybe have some leads on why that will be happening. And something that I'm currently in investigating is whether these episodes of sleep intrusion could have a physiological function Uh, one hypothesis i have is they could slow down the accumulation of fatigue so imagine you're asked to do something very boring you you, you don't really gain anything in being perfect at, at this task but you have to do it anyway but you also know that you have a long day ahead of you where Potentially, we we'll have to do more interesting things. So maybe it's an acceptable bargain for you to limit the amount of resources you dedicate to that boring task, allowing maybe parts of the brain to switch off from time to time. It doesn't mean that you're resting when doing this, but at least you're not accumulating too much fatigue that will be detrimental for the rest of the day. So it, it's kind of... a battery saving mode. So you're not charging up through this uh, local sleep episode potentially, but at least you are not getting even more tired.
0: And, and do we yet know from from your research or f- from work that you and others are doing, whether this kind of daydreaming and mind wandering affects some people more than it affects others?
2: One population we wanted to, to study uh, in particular was the ADHD population because it's a population that has uh, attentional deficits. It's also a population we know are mind blanking a lot. So so those are not necessarily mind wandering more than the average population, but they do mind blank uh, a lot and they report a lot of of these blanks. Um, And it's also a population where you encounter a lot of sleep disturbances. So about half of the adult ADHD reports either um, difficulty sleepings or uh, vigilance issues during the day. So that is more than twofold uh, what you will find in the general population. Uh, So we thought it was an interesting case study because you have a population that has a lot of attentional uh, issues. They also do a lot of mind blanking and they also have a huge sleep pressure during the day because of the sleep depth they accumulate during the night. Uh, so the project is to have ADHD and non-ADHD adults doing the same experiment we, we did, Record we the EEG, record the behavior, record the subjective experience. And our primary findings indicate that ADHD, they indeed have more mind blanking. And this can be explained by an increase in the amount of the sleep intrusions uh, during the day. So their brain looks sleepier from a physiological perspective than a non-ADHD adult.
0: So I just wanted to, to end really by asking whether there's anything, any tips you could give people um, if they find themselves mind-wandering or mind-blanking or, or daydreaming, I guess, as, as most of us would
2: call it. Well, that's, that's a good question. And I think the first thing is to determine whether there is a possible negative outcome of this mind-wandering mind-wandering is often portrayed negatively as something bad that, that you should avoid. And I think if it's so prevalent, it's likely that it has some function or at least it's not that negative. So if you're engaging in mind-wandering in situations where it's safe to do so, it's not uh, dangerous, I think it's not something that people should worry about. But obviously, mind-wandering in certain contexts, like driving is a bit dangerous. Uh, so I think it's important in this situation to realize that, yeah, it's, it's an alarming sign uh, and that it's better to get some rest. Fantastic, great hearing about your research. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to you.
0: Thomas Andrione, he's between the Paris Brain Institute and Monash University in Australia.
1: In this week's episode, we've got some recommended reading from Heather Croker, one of the health editors at The Conversation in London.
3: Hi, this is Heather Croker, health and medicine editor at The Conversation in London. My first recommendation for you this week is a story by James Brown from Aston University in Birmingham. Giving up sugar can have many benefits for our health, but the process of giving it up can often be a pain. While intense cravings are usually the most commonly reported side effect, many people also claim to experience headaches, fatigue, and even depressed mood after giving up sugar. So why does this happen? Well, according to James, these side effects likely stem from the same mechanism that makes sugar feel so good. While this area hasn't yet been extensively studied in humans, James writes that these side effects we experience are likely due to a change in the brain's chemical balance. Basically, eating less sugar causes a rapid reduction in dopamine, a chemical released in the part of the brain involved in pleasure and reward. This reduction of dopamine is likely behind the less-than-pleasant side effects many people experience. Thankfully though, these side effects are only temporary. My second recommendation this week is from researchers at the University of Oxford. We know that sleep is incredibly important for us, that's why we're often reminded to get enough every night. Yet despite how important it is for many of our biological processes, researchers are still continuing to learn new things about sleep every day. One thing that has stumped researchers for a long time is which structure of the brain tells us when we're tired. While many theories have existed, recent research from a team at Oxford might finally put this question to rest. Using mice to conduct their study, the team found that the cerebral cortex, which is responsible for things like perception, language, and episodic memory, appears to be the brain area which tracks how much sleep we've had and tells us when it's time to go to bed. Knowing the integral role that the cerebral cortex plays in tracking our need for sleep could be important both for future research and for developing methods of triggering sleep, especially when we're struggling to nod off. Thanks for listening.
0: Heather Croker there in London. We'll pop some links to her recommendations in the episode show notes. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to The Conversation editors, Kate Kilpatrick, Aurelie Javedi, Michael Lucy, and Stephen Kahn, and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion.
1: As always, you can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email podcast at theconversation.com. You can sign up for our free daily email. It's really good by clicking the link in the show notes.
0: And if you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to.
1: And of course, tell your friends and family about us,
0: especially those who might not listen to podcasts. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Saal.
1: And I am Daniel Marino. Thanks, as always, for listening.